And welcome to the DigiGods podcast for the last week of January 2016. I am happy to welcome a, uh, a strapping young guest here. It's my co-host, uh, young man. What's your What's your name? Uh, my name is Ioannis Cespedes. Yes. Who is Ioannis Cespedes, you ask? I have no idea. You have no idea that no. It is, uh, he is the Mets outfielder, that the Mets had <laughs> zero, zero percent chance of signing in the offseason season. People assumed that he would just go off and sign a $100 million contract for six years with another team, but it turns out the Mets pulled it out. I have Three sold. years, $75 million with an opt-out after one year. We get Ioannis Cespedes back, which means that pretty much, except for Daniel Murphy, we have basically the entire same team who went to the World Series last year. Well, there you go. I'm very excited. Good. Very crafty. You know, Mets it's... management is cheap and stupid, but here they uh, they... They it's, broke up in the wall. They were crafty. It's nice to have you back. Tim did a very good job sitting in for you. Yeah, Tim Cogsill, yes, everyone. Yes, Loved him. And we all... Uh, we, so, so first of all, where have you been? What have, what, tell us about this uh, a crazy adventure of yours, this uh, working seven days a week, 890 hours, uh, whatever you've been doing. Uh, I work at a, a cable network. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had to work Sundays. I've had to work six days a week for the last two and a half months. That's insane. Yeah. Not cool. No. You know what they say? No one ever went to their grave wishing they'd worked more. And you realize that after you work six days a week for two and a half months. Yeah. So this is actually the first Sunday. We're recording this on a Sunday. Yeah. This is the first Sunday where I have not had to work in two and a half months. Well, nice to have you back. Uh, so, thank you so, very much. Um, uh, a lot uh, of controversy since I've been gone. Yeah. Well, first of all, Tim and I talked a, a, a little bit about our Lafka dinner, um, which went very nicely. Very happy with it. You know, the Lafka dinner was about three hours. Oh, it, 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 yeah, it was less. It was just under. So I it, mean, the dinner itself, yes. you, you know, it, well, like The whole evening was like three to four hours, which yeah. my, my, my point being yeah. is that it seems like a long time, but, when you, but you realize that there's, there really is no conceivable way to make that dinner any shorter. If that dinner get people were thrilled with how short it was. I mean, people were commenting as well to Stephen and to, to Justin, and very, they, they loved it. Like, wow, we heard this could be a real slog, you know, because they'd heard from people that previous years are like, oh, man, it goes on forever, uh, which it did once upon a time when, you know, be, before they really cracked the whip. Because, you know, what's interesting is at a certain – there didn't used to be – for those who don't know the structure of the dinner, it's like you go around 5 o'clock. There's, you, you hang out and, you know, do little cocktails in the, uh, in the, the entry. The, there's like a little uh, cocktail area. Should I tell everyone my, 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 uh, my key to uh, getting a free drink at the dinner? <laughs> No, don't. Don't do that because it, the word will get back and then it'll, uh, it, it'll be it's, – it's your secret. You just keep that secret. But it's, it's – uh, you know, there's a little cocktail area. You mingle. You mix. You do the thing. There's a couple of bars at each end. And then they open the doors at 6 o'clock. Everybody goes in. You eat for about, you know, 30, 40 minutes or whatever. And then the first award goes off. And usually you're done – I mean, it used to go. They, we got out of there at eleven thirty in terrible. some years. Really, it, it was, was insane. It was boring as shit. I'm because sorry, it just was. Members of the group will go up and do a little intro, and then they give the award to the person they're presenting to, the actor, the actress, whoever, which are all known ahead of time because we announced them in December. But it didn't used to be that there was a limit to how long you could talk. No, no, so. no, no. no. There was a limit, but nobody paid attention to it. Nobody paid attention. It. Well, then they limited it to three, and half the people paid attention. Now it's like 90 seconds. 
And I got, you know, I had special permission to go longer because I was presenting to the Career Achievement Award winner. So, you know, Anne Coates' career. And that's career. okay. And that's okay. Yes. So, you know, I was told you can go a little longer. Plus, I was introducing, you know, someone else to do a thing. Anyway, there's a whole thing that goes on. So, anyway, but we got done before 10. It was great. It was great. You know what? Uh, you know, what it, the only thing that it missed, which, of course, it would have made the evening longer, is I, I still look back to that golden year where we had a musical performance from Jeff Bridges. Yeah. The year we gave him Best Actor for uh, mm-hmm. Crazy Heart. Yeah. Now, that was cool, to yeah. be in a small, that intimate was. banquet hall, and Jeff Bridges and T-Bone yeah. Burnett are singing. That's great. That's pretty great. But then what happens is, the next year, Robert Dobby shows up <laughs> and sings some Frank Sinatra song. We're like, what the, what the F is he doing here? And that just put a whole sour on the whole musical performance thing. So now we just blow through the awards. You know what else? Uh, uh, and you know how I feel about this, but you know what else made it fast? Was the fact that we did not give out the uh, Douglas Edwards Experimental Award. That's true. Because that usually, that you know thing what? just That's drags true. the evening down. Because you usually give that to someone who has never had their moment in the limelight. They're usually, you know, sitting in a basement somewhere editing, you know, something that will never see the light of day. And it's just a hobby and a project. And suddenly someone gives them a award and here they are sitting in a, an auditorium with, you know, movie stars and a- agents and producers. And they go up there and they don't want to leave. And it'll go on for like 15 minutes. I financed this with my with the inheritances I got from my aunt and my mom's leftover dowry. And then I sold some silverware and begged on the street for a few weeks. And I got a little bit of unemployment and disability. Why and eventually... Talking, why are we talking about this? And, and, I don't know. Uh, did you talk okay. about all this with Tim? Huh? Did you talk about all this with Tim? Yeah, a little bit. But, you know, it was nice of you to take a picture of me uh, blurry going for uh, uh, George Miller's hand with the with the big shake there. That was good. I saw it happening. I said, you know what? Wade's going to want a picture you, of this. I, I'm grateful that you did that. And you know, you know what's funny? Here's my problem. What a then, sweet then, man. Here's, I know. Here's, then we'll move on. You know, after you were done with George, I could, as a member of the group, yeah. I had every right to come to George and say, so, you know, George, I just want I'm, I'm, my name is Mark Heiser. I'm with the group. I just want to shake your hand. You give me a lot of pleasure over the years. Love your movies. I could have done that. Yeah. Every right to do, and he would have to literally listen to me, roll his eyes in his head, and listen to me he for 15 have. seconds. He was so cool. But I just, I'm just not that guy. I just, I just, I'm like, leave him alone. I, I'm not that guy either. But you know what? I was 14 and uh, Mad Max came out. We were like, oh, so cool. And here I am. I'm uh, I'm a grown man. And I'm sitting in the room with the guy that made Mad Max. I am not going to miss the chance to walk up and shake his hand and say, "Dude, you have haunted me since I was 14." I don't blame you. I, it's just not something I can do. Yeah. I wish I could because it's a better so, story. So, uh, so uh, the Academy, bunch of racists. Those crazy racists. You know, yeah. I, I was thinking the other day. It's like, okay, here's. Oh, and, and I'm going to preface my comments. Yes. By saying Tim that, was all over TV the last few days. I know it's wonderful. Yeah, it was Good great. for him. Yeah. Um, I am. Uh, I'm going to preface my comment to saying that the academy is not racist. No, Who's of course racist? not. Racist. The the, the the academy. The Oscars are the symptom, not the disease. The disease is hiring. You have to Bingo. hire these African American and Hispanic and Mexican American writers it, and directors. Can you even name a Can you even name a black DP? Uh, yes. Like, Yes, there's, there's like one. one. There's one. There's, there's one. one. But he did he did two films last year, two of the best films. He did Selma, and he also did uh, yeah because yeah because because a, a, a black director had to hire him. No, but he also no 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 no. In fact, let's pull up his name. I should know his name off the top of my head. Check it. By the way, I had a Mad Max moment coming over here. The the uh, the Long Beach Assassin Riders Bike Club, like sixty of them, buzzed past me. You know what? Along with their no, little no on uh, on Ventura Boulevard in Sherman, uh, in Studio City. There's a uh, there's a coffee bean 
on the corner of Ventura and Coldwater Canyon, mm-hmm. on the weekends, you see all those guys. They are lined up. Their bikes are lined up. They go into that coffee bean, just 60 just mean, mother, just leather-clad, tattooed bikers going into a coffee bean. And all they do is just, I just you know, I'm not a motorcycle guy. I think it's so obnoxious. Well, this was, I seriously, I was wait, like. Wait, wait, was it on Ventura Boulevard? No, it was on PCH. It was like, oh, Toe Cutter, Johnny the Boy, Bubba. You know, I felt I'd had a total Mad Max moment. Anyway. No, um, a most violent year. Same same DP. Beautiful. And you know what? That was a really well shot film. Selma, most violent year, and uh, Ain't Them Bodies, Saints, and Pariah. Those are his, those are, I mean, he, he's amazing. Yeah, that, that guy's He's talented. amazing. He's like, he's the next Emmanuel Lubetsky. Yeah. He's phenomenal. Yeah, his, he, his name is uh, Bradford Young. He's also. Phenomenal. He's also one. True. Well, see, and, and here's the thing. By the way, he also did Pawn Sacrifice, which is really damn good looking. Uh, no, he's doing he's doing a ton of movies. I mean, he's really really good. But here's here's the here's the thing. It's not just it's not just about black people working in the industry. It's not even just about ethnic people working in the industry. It's not just about you know Asians and it's it's uh, it's beyond that. It's it's more than about women. It's even even if you you know there's one reason why, for example, there there is a faith based film movement because those people don't get hired to make movies in the business. They don't feel like they belong in the business. You could even you could even extend it to um, Chinese cinematographers. They work in China. They don't work here because they've got no sort of entryway here. Um, to you know, you extend it to nationalities. You can you can go. You, there are all kinds of ways in which the industry is not very quote unquote diverse. And I kind of hate that word because it's become this cliche that is supposed to you know be a catch all for things. Part of the problem is that the business really it's cronyistic. It's clannish. It's you know you get in because you know somebody or you got family members that were in the business before or you know you got connections. It's very relationship driven and it's really hard to get in. And if you live in a certain part of the world, let's say you live in you know um, freaking war torn you know uh, uh, Turkmenistan or something, to the idea to work in Hollywood, how is that even to work in the movie business at all? How is that even an avenue that you see anywhere around you? You don't. Well, but that, I mean that that point is well taken, but it's sort of over here. We're yeah. we're talking about like. You know, people think that there's that people have this crazy notion that the reason Idris Elba was not nominated for an Oscar was because because the Academy's racist. Well, the reason look, why Michael Jordan did not get it nominated because people cause, here's because the literally the four thousand the the, the fifteen hundred members of the acting branch all colluded and said we don't like black see, people. See, that's the thing. They they look at the demographics of the Academy and say, well, it's mostly white and it's mostly male. Well, that's because the industry in most of these branches is mostly white and mostly male. If you look at the guys who edit movies, who do sound design for movies, who set, who mix movies, who sit in post production stages. Um, most of them are fat white guys, and that, that's just how it's always been. And you know, it's it, it, it's because the same people know the same people, and it's just a job that avails itself to a certain kind of person from a certain place. It's no one's out actively recruiting other people and saying, you know, you could be a sound editor. It just doesn't happen. But the other thing, because everyone focuses on the actors, and and the actors are one thing, and all the others are other things. Since two thousand. More black Americans and, you know, people, if you're black from other countries too, have gotten nominated for Oscars in other categories than ever before in history. I mean, you had Quincy Jones was the first guy ever nominated as a producer of a Best Picture, first black black producer. That was the color purple. That's in the 80s. There was like one more for the next 15 years. And then in the last six years, we've had like five. 
So, I mean, you know, you have, you've had Ang Lee has won director twice. We've had two consecutive Mexican Best Directors. You had Slumdog Millionaire with an all-non-white cast. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Artist was the first time that a, a completely foreign production won Best Picture. This year, sure, all 20 acting nominees are all white. But you know what? Half of them are foreign-born. So there are all kinds of ways that you can kind of slice that pie. And ultimately the problem that everybody needs to focus on is this. If you are black or Asian or Hispanic and you're an actor, specifically an actor, you don't get cast in movies typically unless the part calls for someone of your race. If you're white, you don't face that hurdle. And that's the one that everybody seems to keep going back to. And that's a legitimate concern. And that's an economic concern. That's risk aversion. That's not driven because they hate people who aren't white. That's just because white is considered safe. And if you're not white, oh, my gosh, if we put you in a movie, then the Chinese might not want to go see it. And, you know, Europe might not want to go see you. And suddenly, you know, it becomes you, you're, you're, you're factoring this risk assessment that's really not realistic. No. when, when you know, It's fear-based. Yes. 80% of scripts that circulate around town. The main character is not described based on their race. Which Idris John Elba was Smith, talking about. John Smith, 30, tall, and fat. That's all. It doesn't yeah. say he's white, doesn't say he's yeah. black. Says not, so you could, you could put any white or black actor in there, but they always wind up going for the white actor. And when I was in film school, there was a black uh, graduate student who made a film that had an all-white cast. And he was asked the question, why didn't you cast any black actors? And he said, because I didn't specify race in the casting notice. And I thought I'd just get all the best actors of all races, which is what I was looking for. He said, but then I realized most black actors won't even answer a casting call unless it specifies black. Because that they've been conditioned to think that no one's going to hire them unless it's a specifically black part. And that's sad, and that's unfortunate, and that's what you have to break down. So in, in many respects, the Academy is just, you're right, it's a symptom. It's the tail. You're, you can't blame the, the tail for the dog. Uh, you got to kind of, you know, change the other side of it. So I Well, think I don't want to blame the victim, though. I mean, obviously, I don't no, want to no, blame No, 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 of course not. Black but don't, not. Don't boycott the Academy. Like, no. use this as an opportunity to raise the awareness of the discussion. But that being said, I think the new rules changes are actually good. I like the new rules changes. I do, too. Yeah, I do you know too. what it's it gonna... is? And so, some of the older guys are complaining. You know, well, yeah, you know, yeah. they're 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 89 years old and uh, they like to vote, but they haven't worked in 25 years and get the hell out of there. Yeah. Well, it, but but also, look, if you look at all the 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 branches of the Academy, there's a branch for every category that or every, you know, substantial category that receives an award. You know, there's the there's the the, the, the costumers branch and the, the music branch with the writers branch and all of those. But there are also a bunch of branches, members at large. Which means, you know, you just know somebody. You've got the right connections. There's executives. I mean, there's... there's uh, PR people are in there now? Publicity. Well, you know, the president of the Academy right now, Shobun Isaacs, came from publicity. Yeah. Um, I don't have a problem with, with publicists because they actually work on movies. But executives don't. They sit in an office. I mean, they, 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 they sit in an office. Executives shouldn't be members of the Academy. And honestly, agents and managers who belong to the, like, art actors representation branch, what are they doing in there? Seriously, Ari Emanuel? Why, why does he get to be in the Academy? What does he do? He's an agent. Get out of there. This is for artists. Agents aren't artists. Don't you make enough money? Don't you have enough influence? You have to be in the Academy, too? Come on. Stop it. Seriously. All right, so the bottom line, bottom is, line. The bottom line is this, that the Academy is not racist. Stop it. Yes. But there is a problem in the industry with hiring uh, minority actors. It's a definite problem that's yep. above the line and below the line. And the Academy can only honor the movies and the performances that exist. They can't honor the ones that don't exist. And they can't honor films that don't get distributed. Um, and part of the problem, too, the mid-budget movie disappeared, started disappearing 10 years ago. And that was where people took risks. 
most of the movies that Spike Lee made in his heyday were mid-budget movies. Uh, and, uh, you know, you, you had a lot of talent that got broken through in those movies. And uh, those movies don't exist anymore. So now that talent really is, is limited to television. And that's, and that's kind of unfortunate, you know. But changes have to get made. And, you know, people, you can vote as an as a, as a, as a audience member. Vote with your dollars. Go see good movies. Don't see bad movies. That's kind of where it is. Anyway, let's talk about Blu-rays and DVDs and uh, all that kind of jazz. I like it. Let's do that. Good deal. Do you want any ice cream? Uh, yes, but that would be wonderful. I have ice cream for you. Get me some ice cream. Uh, it is chocolate raspberry ice cream. Oh, my goodness. And you made this? I did. Yeah, yeah, I, you. I have not done a show for two and a half months, and I wanted to welcome you back with something. Well, you're, you're a mensch. And that's my way of saying I made the ice cream like six weeks ago, and I'm trying to get rid of it. That's okay. So I will give it to you. I will pretend that I didn't even hear that. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know what? We have. Um, I have saved up a lot of this. Twilight Time stuff. While you're getting the ice cream, I will go through some Twilight Time stuff. Uh, you can now get Twilight Time titles. Remember, these are all limited in releases. Once they're gone, they're gone. Uh, and you can get them at twilighttimemovies.com or screenarchives.com. But you can also go to twilighttimemovies.com now. They, uh, they have their own, uh, their own site. And, uh, man, what a bunch of great stuff. They just keep... You heard, the, uh, you heard us do an interview over the uh, holiday show. And... Um, Here's one that's just going to wipe you out. Oscar winner for best original score for an amazing score by John Barry. Born free. Born free, Mark. Born free. Elsa the as Lion. free as the... It's great. I, I, you know, I grew up on this movie. I love this movie. Didn't love the sequels quite so much. You know, living free, forever free. Uh, uh, you know, Lame. Free plus one. It just it didn't... Free, free plus tax. Free plus tax, Yeah. Uh, the the sequels all kind of felt like they were just kind of trying to ride on the music, but this uh, has the usual isolated score track, a wonderful, fantastic audio commentary uh, with film historians John Burlingame, uh, Julie Kirgo, and Nick Redman. Uh, Nick Redman, of course, we uh, we did our um, our uh, our uh, interview with and uh, original trailers. It looks gorgeous on Blu-ray. The uh, you know fantastic photography of the African continent. It's wonderful. Uh, Kings go forth. Really interesting pickup. This is from the uh, 20th Century Fox and the MGM Library. Uh, Natalie Wood, never been more beautiful or more stunning. Frank Sinatra and Tony Curtis. Uh, really, really incredibly cool movie. Um, the, uh, the Directed by a guy who primarily did uh, mostly uh, kind of B-movies at the time, Delmer Daves. He did the original 310 to Yuma, but did a lot of just kind of, you know, Really solid, sort of schlocky B-movie stuff for the studios. He was one of their programmer guys. But uh, this is from 1958, and Sinatra and Tony Curtis are uh, a couple of American soldiers uh, during World War II in France, and they fall in love with Natalie Wood, who is an expat. And then, of course, there's a little bit of a uh, kind of a you know a little uh, cloak and dagger thing going on. But it's really a, it's really quite a good film, and uh, one of the best things that Delmer Daves ever did, and I think a really really good pickup. Uh, the, then we also have Mysterious Island, and uh, Mysterious Island is a Jules Verne thing from 1961. Uh, it is uh, technically, I guess, a sequel to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which I had never necessarily known, and I've seen this thing several times in the past. But, uh, it, you know, it's okay. It's, uh, it's sort of more about the special effects of the, of the era than anything else, and it's a great Bernard Herrmann score. But other than that, it's a kind of 
sort of forgettable, but uh, you get a bunch of stuff here too. The uh, audio commentary with uh, Randall, William Cook, C. Courtney Joyner, and Stephen C. Smith, and uh, a few other things, including some TV spots. Uh, also of note, The Detective, another Frank Sinatra film, which is a, a later Sinatra film from 1968. Uh, you know, sort of more of a, this is kind of a, a, a gritty Frank Sinatra cop vehicle. It feels like a 1968 early uh, um, early 70s film, you know, a little bit more in that uh, French Connection-y kind of vein. Um, good score by Jerry Goldsmith, who was really coming on at the time. So uh, that's a it's a decent film, more just a straight Sinatra vehicle. Uh, 1984, which is a film I have some very, very mixed feelings about. This is the Michael Radford 1984. Ooh, I like this one. That was actually made in 1984. It's good. And you, you, see, I was kind of bored seeing this. By the way, by the way, I... Uh, <laughs> you know who I saw this with now that I think back on it I remember this entirely I remember the entire experience of seeing this originally have you, you you've, you've seen the new Star Wars the new the Star Wars movie that all the kids are talking about that all the kids are talking about I have so Brian Burke producer of that so Brian at the time was what would he have been he would have been like uh, I don't know 15 or something 14 or 15 so uh, so I went with Brian to see this uh, I saw 1984 with the, with the future producer of Star Wars uh, no, uh, Brian and I went to see this, and we sat on the balcony of what was then the um, Egyptian Westwood, the UA oh, Egyptian Westwood. I remember Westwood. the Egyptian Westwood. Remember the Egyptian sure. Westwood with all the, the hokey BS that they threw in there. Anyway, so we went and saw this there, and honestly, I nearly fell asleep. I really did. This thing bored me to tears. It, it was beautiful. It was really nicely made. John Hurt is wonderful. Richard Burton is is menacing. You know, when he pulls his tooth out and why are you doing this to me? I'm not doing it to you. You're doing it to yourself. Chilling. I remember that. But I still thought the uh, Ridley Scott uh, 1984 Apple commercial was better. Oh, stop that. It did. Anyway, uh, n- this only has an isolated score and a, th- and a trailer. It is... Um, I don't know that a perfect version of 1984 has been done. The, the previous black and white version is okay. But, you know, anyway. Mixed feelings about that one, but it's on Blu-ray. It looks good. Here we go. This is killer. Bound for Glory. Can you believe... I mean, Twilight Time, this is like killer for them to get Bound for Glory. Uh, fantastic Hal Ashby film. Uh, that is the story of Woody Guthrie, the biopic about Woody Guthrie, um, one of the best films of the 1970s. This is from 1976. Um, only 3,000 units, get it fast. Uh, and our, our very good friend Melinda Dillon has a dual role in this film. Why don't you explain to everybody why 1976 was the greatest year for Oscar Best Picture nominees? Uh, because Rocky won, and everybody was like, What? It, it, no, it, it was. It, it's a film that shouldn't have won. But Oski, uh, Rocky won because it was the zeitgeist film. It was the thing that just sort of got everybody's heart. But, no, but it was Rocky, it was Ro- All the President's Men, yes. Network, Bound, Network Taxi for, Driver, and Bound for Glory. And Bound for Glory. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's like, you kidding me? That's the whole, it's like the holy uh, quadrinity. It really is. Quint, quint, quintinity. And because it was 1976, yeah. the bicentennial. Yeah. And Rocky had a lot of big bicentennial themes woven in there. Those and are five it, incredibly heavy hitter movies. Isn't that crazy? What do you think about the PGA picking uh, the big short? It's going to, uh, it's going to uh, you know, really it's, increase its best picture chances it, now. You know what that says to me? Uh, that doesn't say to me that the best short is, is an odds-on favorite for best picture. What that says to me is The Revenant has no support for best picture. What that says to me is The Revenant is, is completely... I mean, I've been saying Spotlight's going to take it easily. I still say Spotlight will take it. But what that says is that there's really far less, much less support for The Revenant than, than I think everybody thinks. 
It, you know what? It's just it's all about Leo. It's all about Leo and whatever technical awards it happens to get. It's gonna get Leo. Nothing else. It's not gonna get anything else. It's not gonna get anything else. It's not. Everything else will go to Mad Max. Trust me. Uh, anyway, isolated score and trailer on Bound for Glory as well. But David, by the way, who shot this film? <laughs> making me sad. Aww. Pascal Wexler, who passed away a couple weeks ago. Oh, and then like literally days afterwards, Vilmos Zygmunt went. Like the two guys who literally recreated the '70s for us, along with you know. Gordon Willis, but Gordon Willis is still with us, knock on wood. Uh, anyway, Leonard Rosenman wrote a great score, and uh, David Carradine, best thing he's ever done on film. Best thing he's ever done, playing Woody Guthrie. Really, really good. Um, speaking of great films from the 70s, Jack Nicholson in The Last Detail, another Hal Ashby film. Uh, this is from 1973, and Hal Ashby, just a, a you know superb director, and this is, this is why. He made just so many really, really good films. Former editor... Known around town as the guy that just what with his big old beard and his long gray hair and flip flops and, li- and linen pants. Hal Ashby owned the seventies because in the eighties he did like nothing, but he and in the sixties he did barely nothing. He was the seventies. He was the seventies, but he was he, he. You looked at him and you're like, that dude just looks like the seventies. He just looks like like a dirty old hippie hanging out on the side of the road, just asking you for a spleef, doesn't he? He looks like that guy. No Wait, saying the word spleef. I know. I just, it sound. It, yeah, I thought it'd be funny. Anyway, Jack Nicholson. Uh, Dennis, Randy Quaid, uh, Carol Kane, it, really a great cast here. Um, Otis Young, really, really great. So uh, you know, it's just it's it, it's wonderful. Jack Nicholson is, as a sailor, and it's just it's man, it's such a good movie. Okay, uh, real quickly wrapping these out so we can get around to some other stuff. Uh, the happy ending. Unusual, unusual uh, release from uh, Twilight Time. This is a uh, 1969 film from uh, Richard Brooks, another great director of the era, 1960s primarily. Uh, also shot by an amazing cinematographer, Conrad uh, Hall, and an amazing score by, the Michel, by Michel Legrand, the great uh, French composer of uh, things like Yentl and the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. And uh, it's wonderful. The isolated score track alone is worth getting this because you can't find this score anywhere. Uh, it's just Michel Legrand music that you, you've got to hear to believe it. Shirley Jones, John Forsyth, uh, Gene Simmons, all just fantastic in, a, in a, just a, what's basically a melodrama about a busted-up marriage. But it's a, it's a really, really interesting movie. Uh, Hawaii, based on the James Michener book when he was writing about giant geographical places. A great score by Elmer Bernstein that uh, is also isolated here. This is from the Mirish Company with a screenplay by Dalton Trumbo and a great direction by George Roy Hill. Basically, it's uh, you know uh, straightforward kind of colonial era epic with um, Julie Andrews and Max von Sydow and Richard Harris in Hawaii during the kind of colonial early period of Hawaii, the 19th century, and uh, all the conflicts that go on trying to sort of civilize those barbaric Polynesian people and their their hula hoops and all that stuff that they invented. Because they invented the hula hoop, right? For they kids? also invented the For pineapple. Kids? The pineapple. The pi- they invented it, right? They did. That's their invention. They, they crossed a pine, a pine cone with an apple. All right. Uh, another kind of an unusual uh, Twilight Time pickup here is uh, Harlock Space Pirate 3D, which is an animated uh, film from the Harlock world, if you're familiar with any of the anime. Uh, this is the original Japanese version on one disc and an international cut on another disc, both of them in 2D and 3D. Uh, not going to be for all Twilight Time fans, but uh, it's actually, you know, kind of a, this is kind of a cult title. So anybody who's into the, uh, the whole Harlock thing, you'll totally dig it. 
Uh, and then lastly, From the Terrace, uh, really another kind of forgotten classic directed by Mark Robson, another one of those great big movie studio guys from the 60s, uh, with uh, a very old Myrna Loy showing up in here as well, not too old, but uh, basically this is a Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward movie, and uh, it's, you're, you're watching you know, the real-life couple just do their thing, and it is, uh, it is really, really great drama based on the John O'Hara novel, and uh, it's good. Paul Newman's great. John Woodward's great. Mark Robinson's direction is great. Classic 1960s filmmaking. So all of those on Blu-ray. Thank you, Twilight Time. Beautiful. Mark, what we got? Uh, we have the big uh, release of the week. We have The Martian with Matt Damon. This thing is up for uh, 800 Academy Awards. And, 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 um, and you know, uh, just a quick note. One reason, one of the things that they're, they're talking about changing with the Oscars, which they should change, was when they went from, when they went to 10 nominees... It was no longer just about how many votes nominated you. It was about, well, you had to rank one through ten. So everybody had to write down ten movies and rank their favorite and then their second favorite, which starts to get pretty arbitrary. Because you, you and I both know that if you ask me on Tuesday what my ten favorite films are, they're going to change on Wednesday. And uh, you had to get – and they changed it so you had to get 350 or, or first-place votes – in order to get a Best Picture nominee, so if, a nomination. So even if you had like 3,000 number two votes, if you didn't get 350 number one votes, you missed that nomination. Now, what do you want to bet that, that uh, if you totaled up the, the points the way that we do in LAFCA, that Straight Outta Compton would have been easily one of the top five, six, seven movies? Easily. If you just total up all the points. But it didn't get 350 first place points. So it didn't wind up there. So why did they do that? So that movies like The Martian would get in there. So they get blockbusters in there. That's what they did that for. That, what's funny is that when, when the Academy first extended it, they wanted to get The Dark Knight at the time, these blockbusters yeah. in it. But then for the last 10 years or so, it wound up just adding more slots for smaller films. <laughs> yeah, like Birdman. Like Birdman. Yeah. You know. So here, yeah. I guess it paid off in the sense that The Martian got in. And uh, does The Martian deserve to be nominated for Best Picture? Um, well, not really, but it's a very solid mainstream piece of entertainment that I think people really latched on to because it uh, showed the power of you know American can-do scientific ingenuity. And it's nice to see a movie where a character actually kind of articulates what he's doing in order to get out of this difficult situation and that there's a lot of actual science involved. It made people feel smart. It made people feel it was just another dumb blockbuster. So uh, it's a good film. You know, it's a good film. It's exciting. Ridley Scott, you know, I, I was... I don't know that Ridley Scott had to direct this film. It could have been directed by any number of uh, people. I'd like to see Ridley Scott, you know, I'd rather have him go back to doing some kick-ass alien films or something a little bit more visually distinctive. But still, Martian's a solid film, and Matt Damon is terrific in it. He holds the film together. I don't blame the actor for saying, hey, look, here's one guy who's in this film for two and a half hours, and you care. It's, I mean, you know what it is? It's almost like, you know... A performance is 90% casting anyway. Yeah. And when you cast Matt Damon, he's such an everyman. He's so charming. You get, always get silly him. at the end, though. It does. Well, the thing is that they, the, the issue is that all of that, all of that uh, goodwill that it had accumulated with the audience for yeah. all that scientific you know, accuracy, yeah. they throw that out <laughs> like in the last 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, so that was a little disappointing. But, I, uh, but by and large, I. Didn't it, didn't it start to feel a little bit like Dark Star at the end? <laughs> anyway, it's got a bunch of uh, okay uh, special features on it. Um, yeah, for the Martian, I would definitely check that out. Also, looks gorgeous. Looks yeah, it's gorgeous. A good film. It's looks good looking. gorgeous. Uh, Woody Allen's latest, Irrational Man. This is uh, Woody Allen, very flatly shot. Uh, it's kind of boring. It uh, wasn't really my favorite. This is like Woody Allen. You know what it is? When you do a movie a year, some are going to be good, some are not going to be good. 
you know, this is one of those ones that yep. just feels a little bit cranked out. Don't you feel, though, when you look at Woody's later, later stage stuff, I, I would say everything from kind of bullets on Broadway to, to the present day, where he's begun casting surrogates for himself... Right, where you right. get Larry David basically as a surrogate, or Jason Biggs, or Jason God, Biggs right, or 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 you know, I mean, where all the movies where he's had surrogates for himself, and John Cusack was a really good one in Bullets Over Broadway, but you know, and he's even he's even had Owen Wilson has been his surrogate, he's had Josh Brolin as his surrogate. The two that I think don't really work are Sean Penn and Joaquin Phoenix. They're the two that don't really pull off the Woody persona. The others are all, they're all a little bit kind of nerdy and neurotic enough that they can sort of kind of weave themselves into the characters that he writes clearly for himself or based on himself. But, well, but, well, he would surely deny that. Well, he would deny that, of course. But they, they're, all, they're all sort of per- facsimiles of his persona. But the two that don't pull it off are Joaquin Phoenix and, uh, and Sean Penn. Well, I think Sean they, Penn... Has, there's there's nothing vulnerable vulnerable or soft about Sean Penn. He's got to really he's got to really try. Although El Chapo might disagree with you. You know why are you not eating the ice cream I made? Why are <laughs> oh, you yeah. not eating the ice Never cream? Never mind. I'll eat the ice cream. Now, um, un- unlike other Woody Allen uh, Blu-ray releases, this one has uh, three Woody Allen commentaries and uh, three discs worth of extras. <laughs> oh, it doesn't have that. Actually, this one has a has this a, is a really good ice cream. Thank you. Hey, you. Now, did you think it would be? Chocolate ice cream with like raspberries, just like big plump raspberries in it. Mm. That's not what it is. Mm-mm. I pureed the raspberries. Oh, listen to you. I pureed the raspberries. I strained the seeds out, and then oh I just uh, dumped it into the chocolate. Mm. Very nice. Thank you. Just saying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Emma Stone is in this, and uh, she of course is delightful. I have to say that I felt that Woody's previous film, the one with um, the one with. Um, uh, the King's Speech guy, I like that one a lot. The King's oh oh uh, Colin Firth. Yes, I like the one, the one Colin yeah. Firth. Yeah 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 yeah. And uh, oh, Emma, Emma uh, mm-hmm. Stone. That one mm-hmm. I thought was delightful, mm-hmm. and I know that one uh, uh, kind of got overlooked. This one I think deserves to be overlooked, um, but it does have Parker Posey. That's a good thing. We like Parker Posey. Yeah. Anyway, now let's talk about one of uh, Hollywood's most legendary bombs, Gem and the Holograms. Oh my gosh, this thing just. Gem and the Holograms. <sighs> Gem of the Holograms is based on a cartoon that nobody remembers or a show, whatever the hell it was, that nobody mm-hmm. remembers. And somehow, you know, this thing was just destined to fail. And not only did it fail, it failed spectacularly. This thing opened up on 2,500 theaters and made $1.3 million. That was a per screen, a, that was a, a Hollywood historical worst per screen average of $570 per screen. Was it worse than the Oogie Loves movie? I thought that was the worst. Supposedly, that's I think the Oogie Loves movie opened on like three thousand screens and made negative twenty dollars because somehow uh, they had to pay somebody back for their their for. There was a know, weird reason why they wound up choking on a kernel of popcorn. That's what it was. There was something going on there, but it was funny because I was reading about it uh, when it came out, and you know, is Universal the, the studio that released it stopped reporting the numbers after just two weeks? Because what's the point? You know, because <laughs> you're paying more to the people who are reporting it. I, you're paying. You're paying the, the money you spend to to salary the people who are paid to report the movie are making more than than the movie's making. That's hysterical. So this thing is just obviously uh, oh, really good. Thank you. That that that's enough sugar for me to uh, to keep going for the next for the week. You know, let me tell you something. Yeah. That that like li- li- like all great uh, mm. recipes, it has only four ingredients. Very few ingredients. It has cream. Yeah. 
raspberries, sugar, mm-hmm. and Dutch chocolate. And why are you laughing? You're, I'm, you I'm like laughing. You're laughing. I'm laughing because the whole subject of ice cream. I was listening to Patton Oswalt on Friday when I was driving into the radio, and um, you just reminded me of the, uh, the George Kill George Lucas with a Shovel segment where he says, you want something you like ice cream? I love ice cream. Well, here's a bag of rock salt. So anytime I hear, you know, you start talking about ingredients for, uh, for, for, for ice cream, I think about rock salt, and that makes me think about Patton Oswalt, and then I laugh. It's a great story, Wade. Yeah, um, okay. Sinister 2 is the sequel to Sinister, and, uh, you know, this thing is uh, terrible. I mean, what do you want me to say? I'm, I'm, always amazed. I'm always amazed at the stuff that actually not just gets made, but gets sequelized. Like Sinister, really? Did the first Sinister do so well they needed to have a Sinister two, or are they just being lazy? How much? Look, they would rather do Sinister two and hope for the best than do something original. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You know, if it has a two on, if people think, "Oh my God, if, if, if the first one was," I must have missed the boat on the first one. If there's now there's a sequel. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Wow. Mm. Anyway, it's got a couple of good scares, but um, I just think these the, the, both these movies I think are just really stupid. Um, so that's Sinister two. Uh, the paranormal, paranormal Activity, that uh, that series uh, actually wasn't bad, but I got to tell you, man, this thing jumped the shark with uh, the Ghost Dimension, which is available on the Blu-ray 3D, Blu-ray, yeah. and DVD. Um, you know, the thing is well into its lifespan as a franchise. I hope it dies. There's lapses in logic, and the found footage thing is just, I'm, I'm totally over it. And the jump scares are predictable, and, you know, I just think this thing needs to go off and die. So hopefully... Para- um, Paranormal activity will um will die forever with this particular sequel, which is really All bad. Right. Cool. Speaking of really bad, painkillers. Painkillers is about a bunch of Marines sent on this uh, classified mission uh, in Afghanistan, and it's a total programmer. And it's uh, this thing it looks low budge all the way. The cast is nothing to write home about. A bunch of people you never heard of, except Calm Fior. He does a bunch of like drama stuff, like on Fox and whatnot. But um, Got a couple of exciting moments, but still, I just think this is completely, um, uh, completely generic. There's contracted phase two. Now, um, I wasn't really sure what um, what contracted phase one was, but uh, based on contracted phase two, I'll pass. Um, anyway, the sequel is based. It's based on this uh, this this guy played by Matt Mercer. He uh, he tries to find more about this virus that he was infected with. So it's it's a it's a little better than low budget looking, but it's still pretty low budget looking, and you know it's just the 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 finale is just really just a bunch of blood thrown around the screen. It's just ridiculous. It just it's you know what it is. It's like a virus movie combined with a little bit of a monster movie, and so I just think that the filmmakers really took on more than they can chew on this one because it just needed somebody with a much shorter, more professional hand. And then uh, equally bad, mm. you have the diabolical. Now the diabolical stars Ali Larder who. I mean, oh, she, she was she was the, uh, the 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 commercial that famous commercial where she flips around and does the whole uh, what was that a beer commercial chip commercial chip commercial that was that Lay's commercial but she she I does she does stuff yeah um, she plays as a uh, mother of two living in the suburban home and then all these crazy things happen and she's got to figure out what is it that's so frightening of course it's um, she brings on these paranormal experts so basically it's the same as Paranormal Activity Poltergeist anything where a woman is living in a home strange things happen they bring in the experts. And spooky things happen. It's uh, just like the other one. It's totally generic. Um, and once you find out what exactly the situation is, you'll be like, uh, okay, that wasn't worth waiting for. So that's um, the Diabolical. Yeah. And then um, you have another movie called The Looking Glass. This one uh, this one is not a 
horror film. Why do we even? Why are we even talk about this? I don't know. Anyway, Looking Glass. It was. Um, it's directed by John Hancock, which is kind of interesting because John Hancock, who's done like nothing forever, he directed uh, the guy's Oscar nominated. He directed Bang the Drum Slowly with Robert De Niro. So you got to love that. So anyway, it's about this um, 13-year-old girl, this newcomer named Grace Tarnob, who's actually pretty good. She goes to live with her grandmother, who used to be a, an actress. And so she, you know, she doesn't get along with the grandmother. And so she sort of starts to drift around and kind of try to find herself and find her voice and her passion with the help of her grandmother, just in terms of like... Because her grandmother was an actress who obviously finds different voices by, the, by virtue of the fact that she gets cast in all these roles. And so this girl is kind of a little rudderless kind of uses that as a jumping-off point to find herself. So, you know what, this really isn't really bad. You know, Looking Glass is kind of nice. It's um, put out by First Run Features, and so uh, if you've got, if you've literally, literally watched every single solitary thing on Netflix, and there's nothing else to watch, watch five other things, Sweet. watch this. All right. Okay. So, we well, we got, um, we got some good stuff now from Criterion and Olive and Synapse. Uh, three from Synapse that I want to make a quick mention of here. Um, Synapse, you know, usually does kind of culty stuff. Uh, the, you know, the the, the memorable, um, you know, sort of it's fan stuff, right? I mean, they release movies that have a really strong cult following. This is the weirdest thing that Synapse has ever released, and that is saying something because Synapse has released some really fringy, weird stuff. Mark, you ever heard of Thundercrack? That's what they call my. Um... Don't don't joke because literally that's what whatever you are thinking of whatever your joke is that's what the movie is. Uh, Thundercrack is a cult film from 1975. It's two and a half hours long, and uh, it is it's kind of insane. Uh, the this is a this is a pornographic horror film, which is the only way I can describe it. But it's really just completely off the wall. 1975 is pretty late for something like this to be made because it actually. It feels more like a film that would have been made in about 1965 or 66 or 67 when the heyday of, you know, roughy films and uh, really, really fringy horror films were being made. Anyway, uh, basically it's a completely weird, off-the-wall, just totally psychedelic, kind of hardcore-ish horror film set in a spooky house on a hill. And there's no other way to describe it. It's just totally off-the-wall. It's weird. It's far out. Uh, It's... Over two hour, two and a half hours long, and it's it's nuts. Anyway, uh, there is a uh, feature length uh, documentary on here that is way better than the film itself. I can't remember the film. I can't recommend the film at all, but I can recommend the. Uh, it came from Kushar, which was made in two thousand nine, which is a merciful hour and a half. And this is a documentary about the uh, twin brothers George and Mike Kushar, who uh, who were b- basically responsible for this thing right George Kishar was the the, the one mainly in charge in, uh, involved with this film but uh George and Mike Kishar twin brothers and uh it, this is all about them and you got a lot of fascinating interviews here with people including Adam Agoyan and Buck Henry and uh, Wayne Wang and John Waters and Guy Madden I mean people who were really influenced by them in a very strange and weird way this was completely off of my radar I had never heard of this film till it showed up so there it is. That is Thundercrack from Synapse. And this new, this whole new line of uh, Synapse comes in black Blu-ray keep cases, which is kind of stark. I've never seen these before, but they're interesting. Uh, another one from Synapse is the uh, 2003 International Emmy nominee for Best Documentary, the original 2003 uncut miniseries of Stalingrad. 
And uh, not exactly a, a, a point in history that you want to spend a lot of time with. The uh, siege of Stalingrad, uh, Russia and Germany in 1943 is just so depressing and so stark and so brutal. It is an important part of history to know about, but it is really unbelievably unpleasant to watch. It is, uh, it's pretty depressing. It's one of the darkest episodes of World War II. And we don't talk about it a lot in the United States because obviously we weren't involved. But it is, uh, it is really quite, uh, quite hard-hitting and definitely worth, chelling, uh, worth watching. It certainly uh, gives you what went on from both sides, the German side and the Russian side. It really balances both perspectives and, and both uh, sets of experiences in a, in a very, very professional way. So uh, there's that, and then there's some uh, supporting documentaries as well. And then as long as we're talking about depressing World War II-era stuff, here you go. This is The Big Mama. Uh, not exactly a film that is pleasant to watch. It is disturbing and frustrating, and yet if you can detach yourself in any way emotionally... Uh, it is an important film to watch because it is it is one of the most important films ever made, independent of uh, the uh, the ideology behind it, independent of what it represents historically, and in many respects also because of what it represents historically. And we are talking about uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will special edition, which uh, has never been out on Blu-ray before, but it is now. And uh, Triumph of the Will, of course, is uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's masterful propaganda film that uh, boosted the Nazi Party and Adolf Hitler by capturing the uh, 1934 Nazi Party uh, rally in Nuremberg. And uh, it is it is an incredible piece of craftsmanship. And yet, the you know knowing what we know, it uh, it's it's hard to watch the film without just bristling and. Uh, and really being upset at the manipulation. And, of course, those who've listened to the podcast long enough know that my mother was, a, was of course, German and a, a refugee around the, uh, right at the end of World War II. So it's hard for me to watch this without sort of thinking of all of our family history and uh, all the ugliness that, uh, that entailed from that period. So I, uh, you know, I, I guardedly recommend Triumph of the Will for those who are able to sort of um, put their emotions in, in a certain place and watch this with some kind of... I guess, uh, antiseptic objectivity, if that's even possible. You know, this, this movie obviously is historically vital, I hate to say it, but it, yeah. it, it reminds me there's a parallel here between a Triumph of the Will and like Birth of a Nation, where even mm-hmm. though what it has to say might be abhorrent, yeah. historically it's, it's need, it needs to be out there, it can't be buried, it can't be ignored. You know, every time in Los Angeles, whenever there's a whenever there's whenever there's a revival screening of Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. you know, all these African American people always, you know, they 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 boycott the theater and they say, "How dare you? It's racist." And yes, it's racist. It is. I mean, it it's is. a horrible film. But you, but you can't ignore it. I mean, I own Birth of a Nation Blu-rays. Assume me. I mean, just yeah. I'm saying it's it's it's, a, it's an historically <laughs> important film. Despite what it has to say, and Triumph of the Will is the same way. And in Birth of a Nation, by the way, was the film that when I taught film history, uh, that was the first film that I asked people to watch because I wanted them to see something. You know, people tend to take film history classes thinking, "Cool, I get to watch free movies," and I wanted to make sure that you know the people that took the class started with something that that frustrated and disturbed them and bothered them, and uh, you know that's because that's what movies do sometimes, and and especially as critics, you have to deal with that. Uh, Olive, we got a, an amazing bunch of cool stuff from Olive Films. Olive has has really hit it out of the park this month. Let me tell you what we got. We have we start off with the undesirable, a a practically lost 1914 film by Michael Curtiz, the future director of Casablanca, made when he was in Hungary before he came to Hollywood. 
when his name was still, uh, you, know, you know, Mikhail Hortiz or whatever, however you would pronounce it uh, in the in the original Hungarian, uh, before he kind of you know uh, anglicized it. Uh, really, an incredible silent film. The the elements look like they were pretty shot, so uh, it's about an hour long, and and the Blu-ray gives you the best condition of this stuff that I think is probably possible. But uh, consider, you know, you can see the emergence of a really uh, incredible craftsman here, uh, somebody who was probably not really as acknowledged during the silent era as he could have been, but again went on in the si- in the sound era to become much bigger than any other uh, silent era director who uh, transitioned to sound. So. A uh, fantastic score here, by the way, uh, from the Pannonia Symphony Orchestra, which I've never heard of, but uh, lovely, lovely job there. And, uh, you know, the uh, it's just it's a it's a really, really, really cool uh, silent film called The Undesirable. you got to check that out. Um, here's a film that I saw at the Cannes Film Festival in uh, 1992. Which is uh, Gary Sinise's *Of Mice and Men*. He directed this, and he acts in it along with John Malkovich. It's a good. I like this a lot. I do it's too. Terrific. I do too. I really do. I think this is. Uh, I think this is, in many respects, the definitive telling of *Of Mice and Men*. Um, it really feels much more Steinbecky than than uh, certainly than the the old black and white version. But um, I thought this was really good, and part of it is that they hired Horton Foote to write the screenplay, and I thought that's really smart. Yeah. You know, so that it's, was it's really, a wonderful match of uh, a screenwriter and material. It's it's perfect, and it just John Malkovich as Lenny is is just perfect, absolutely perfect. Could not be better. Uh, and uh, Sherilyn Fenn, you know, coming right off of uh, right off of Twin Peaks, made a, a wonderful transition, and she's just fantastic in this. I mean, it's perfect casting. Um, and I remember I remember really really well the uh, the press conference. You know, this was in competition at Cannes in 1992, and that was my first year there, and I was just so kind of blown away. I, I thought, wow, that's a really beautiful movie, and I had no idea that Gary Sinise directed. Uh, then we also have Let There Be Light, John Huston's wartime documentaries. Um, for those who don't know. Almost everybody who was anybody in Hollywood during World War II went and made documentaries. Frank Capra obviously made the Why We Fight series. He didn't actually go to combat. Uh, John Ford went and put himself right in the middle of combat and and got some amazing color footage from Guadalcanal and places. Uh, William Wyler, you know, Memphis Bell. I mean, everybody was involved in doing stuff uh, for the war effort. And uh, John Huston, just like the rest of them. So you get a, a whole bunch of really, really great documentaries here. There are all kinds of links. Some of, most of them are kind of, you know, between uh, 20 minutes and an hour. Uh, but it's uh, it's really uh, it's really 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 good stuff, and you even have like report from the Aleutians, which was in the Pacific Theater, obviously up when uh, you know a lot of people don't realize Japan was was given as hell up by Alaska. Uh, that was actually nominated for best documentary short at the Academy Awards, and uh, the and San Pietro is the the really famous one, uh, which was uh, added to the National Film Registry. As was Let There Be Light, which is uh, a much more controversial and longer film. Um, but uh, you get bonus features, which includes raw camera footage from San Pietro and, uh, and an hour of Shades of Grey. It's just really, really great stuff. Really great stuff. John Huston just uh, you know, un- completely unleashed that warrior in himself and gave us some amazing footage from World War II. And then the last four here, uh, this is one that's a little bit more off the beaten path. Olive picks up a lot of stuff from, uh, from Japan as well. This is a film called Hanadama, The Origin. And uh, I was not familiar with the uh, director of the film by the name of Sato Hisayasa. 
who previously made a film called Splatter, Naked Blood, which tells you a lot. These guys, he's one of a direct group of directors uh, that I'm not familiar with, but who were known as the, uh, the Four Devils who worked on pink films in the 1980s. Now, I've seen a lot of the pink film stuff. Uh, Andy Klein and I did some commentary for, for a lot of the pink films, but there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these movies. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a domain that I'm not that familiar with. But it is uh, it is weird and fringy and uh, and very very culty, and uh, this one in particular the uh, the whole thing it's you know a lot of these cult films in Japan take place in high school and center on students because there's a weird fetishistic thing going on. Anyway, uh, this is the, the deals with a girl who grows a flower from her head, and that enables her to wreak vengeance on those who have tormented her. True story? Uh, it actually, as a matter of fact, it is. Wow. Anyway, uh, this is the... It's a very, very strange and, and weird film, but it if if you like these weird, fringy, culty, fetishy Japanese films, man, it's going to be just perfect for you. Uh, Life Tracker is an interesting little kind of uh, low-budget sci-fi thing from 2013. Uh, an olive pickup of a film that obviously you know didn't uh, didn't get a substantial theatrical release, but this includes DVD and Blu-ray, not just the Blu-ray, but a DVD and a Blu-ray, and uh, the whole it's it's one of these newfangled low-budget sci-fi films that deals with a uh, with a rather tantalizing what if, and it's nice it's nice that they aren't. Um, that they're not dealing with, uh, you know, time travel, which is getting really, really, like, synchronicity, one that I saw this last week that we didn't actually get to on the radio. It's like, oh, another time travel movie? Please, stop it. I've seen these paradoxes enough. The idea here is that, that you know, if DNA could predict your future, if you could figure out everything you need to know about your future uh, through your DNA. Quite interesting. Directed by uh, Joe McLean, who uh, previously made How to Make a David Lynch film, and uh, it's uh, it's actually quite interesting. It sort of gets into the... It deals with metaphysical and existential concepts about our accumulation of information and how we process it, and I thought it was pretty smart. Uh, Serial is another weird culty film uh, that that just completely fell off of a lot of people's radar. This is from 1980. Feels very much like a 1970s film. It's got that culty thing that a lot like a Kentucky Fried movie kind of had. It sort of feels like let's throw a bunch of people together and just do something totally wild with not very much money. Martin Mull stars along with uh, Tuesday Weld and Christopher Lee and Sally Kellerman, and uh, the it, it's based apparently on a novel uh, called Serial: A Year in the Life of Marin County. But um, it's basically just a satire of, of hippie lifestyle from the 1970s, which is probably why it feels like the 1970s. And then lastly, uh, a really lovely Blu-ray of Christmas Eve. Uh, Olive did a great job with this. This is a uh, I wouldn't call this the the most Christmassy film in the world, but it's um, it's really one that uh, I'll have to ask Alonzo about this. This really deserves to kind of be in there with the unsung Christmas films of yesteryear. This is from 1947. It stars uh, George Raft, Randolph Scott, Joan Blondell. Great 1940s era kind of noir cast. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially uh, about... A, it's sort of a, a noir that turns into a melodramatic, heartwarming holiday comedy. And, uh, you know, I, I thought it was good. George Raft, seeing him in something in which he's not, you know, shooting somebody or conspiring to kill somebody in some diabolical way, it's nice. You know what else is nice, Wade? What's nice? Criterion. Oh. Now, some of these have, uh, are already on shelves. Some of these are a little bit newer, but uh, we're catching up on stuff. 
And uh, Wade was nice enough to uh, wait until I was back to uh, talk about Speedy, starring my all-time favorite, uh, Harold Lloyd. I knew it. And uh, this Speedy is wonderful. It's Harold Lloyd's last silent film, and uh, it's just great. And what's great about it is that, you know, Harold, he shot a lot of his stuff in Los Angeles, but he really felt that no studio in Hollywood could replicate Manhattan. So he actually decided to film Speedy partially in New York City. And it's great. He shoots in the village and in Central Park and at Yankee Stadium, where you can see uh, the film also uh, features Babe Ruth, which is fantastic. So that's a nice little snapshot of New York during the 1920s. Um, <clears throat> this film is great. It's a lot of fun. It's about this character. It's you know Speedy was actually um, Harold Lloyd's nickname, which was given to by given to him by his father. Um, Speedy is this baseball crazy guy who can't hold a job. He tries to be a cab driver. He tries to be a you know like a soda jerk, and then in the end he finds his calling, which is to try to save New York's last horse-drawn streetcar, and that's where it all comes from. And this is a wonderful film. And uh, I actually have a uh, Harold Lloyd box set, so I've kind of neglected to. Although I do have Safety Last on Blu-ray, I've neglected to buy a lot of the Harold Lloyd stuff on Blu-ray because I do have this wonderful DVD box set, but. I'm going to have to pick up Speedy because Wade won't give this to me. Oh, Speedy. Yeah, I'm going to be all right. Mm -mm. Love Speedy. It's a beautiful movie. It really is. It's great. And it's it's so little seen, you know. It's one of those, I think partly because... 1928, by the way. I think think partly it's because Harold Lloyd is, and, and to some degree, I mean, Chaplin and Keaton have a whole catalog of films that everybody pays attention to. You can sort of name off all the great Chaplin films. You can name off all the great Keaton films one after another. Oh, Sherlock Jr., The General, on and on and on and on. But where where um, Lloyd is concerned, it's sort of like Safety Last and... And Safety Last. And Safety Last, right? You it's know, because Safety Last has the image of him hanging from the clock, and that's and, like the yeah. iconic image. And that's the one, and everyone kind of starts and stops there. And, uh, and you know, they, it's, they, it's, really, it's really sad, because he was wonderful. They miss a he, lot of he, the other stuff. Because he had his, he had, he had just like um, Chaplin had, you know, the kid. Yeah. You know, uh, Lloyd had his character, the glasses yeah. character. Yeah. And he'd wear the, the round glasses, and yeah. that was his thing. Yeah. And it was great. I thought he was just wonderful. Um, By the way, the other thing that, to point out about Harold Lloyd, even though he was considered the number three guy of all of them, he was by far the one that was smartest with his money. Uh, because Buster Keaton wound up not owning anything and was almost destitute at a certain point in his life. And Chaplin did fine, but had so many problems with women and children and wives and, and marriages and then taxes and the government and wound up just becoming a... A, you know, a, a recluse in Switzerland just saying to hell with the whole thing and throwing it all away. And uh, Harold Lloyd was really very smart, never had any problems, didn't have any family problems, no illegitimate children problems or, you know, uh, statutory rape or taxes, none of that. And he wound up owning, you know, like two-thirds of Los Angeles. It was great. I mean, he, he, there's so much land in Los Angeles where like, oh, yeah, that was part of Yeah, Harold Lloyd owned that. He owned that. He owned that. I mean, he was, it was amazing. He did, he did. He was smart. He was also a guy who uh, blew his fingers off. Did you know that? No. Harold Lloyd. If you look at Harold Lloyd films, you got to look very carefully because they're obviously you know eighty years old and black and white and whatever. In in this accident, Harold Lloyd lost his thumb and the index finger of his right hand. You're kidding. And so he did a lot of those stunts and things that he did without use of with three fingers with that two fingers of his right hand. Holy cow! In fact, you can in certain films, you can see where like he would wear like they would. Give like he'd have like a prosthetic, or he'd wear a glove that had five fingers, so you couldn't really tell he didn't have all five fingers of his right hand. Yeah, awesome! Wow, <laughs> it's awesome that he lost. Uh, <laughs> it was so awesome. Speaking of awesome, we have um, 
also from Criterion, Burroughs by Howard Bruckner. This is a very important historical document from 1983. This is, uh, you know, it was filmed over the course of five years, and it's all about William S. Burroughs. And William S. Burroughs, if you don't know, he was a major American novelist and satirist and spoken word performer and, you know, all around really strange person. He, you know, his primary work was, you know, Naked Lunch, which gives you a sense of, you know, how weird he was, mm-hmm. which Cronenberg made a film out of about 20 years ago. Yeah, more with, with this point. Peter Weller. Uh, with Peter Weller. So yeah. uh, this is a great, you know, especially now that, um, you know, now that uh, Burroughs is gone, he died, I think, in mid-90s, 96, 97, something like that. But now that he's been gone for, let's say, almost 20 years, which is so sad, this is a great behind-the-scenes look at how he thought, what he said. There's also, uh, he also... Um, the director, Bruckner, also got help from some uh, more contemporary filmmakers, including Jim Jarmish, and uh, lots of interviews with folks you might remember, like Allen Ginsberg, Terry Southern. So this is just great stuff. It's historically important. It's highly entertaining. It gives you an inside look into a very important American writer. And so I would highly recommend uh, Burroughs. And, of course, as usual, Criterion comes up with all sorts of great extras, including an audio commentary with Jim Jarmish. Uh, looks great. Audio interview with the director, Howard, uh, Howard uh, Bruckner from 1985. So, uh, yeah, definitely good stuff from Burroughs. The the film Wade has in his hand, I was not really a huge fan of, although I don't know. <laughs> well, it never got Maybe you like it. it. I'll, I'll, I, I, I have, you didn't like it. It's uh, Jellyfish Eyes. Um, this is from, from 2013. This is a very unusual pickup for, uh, for Criterion through Janus Films. I, I don't know what the... The lineage of this film is, but man, this is one of these weird, freaky Japanese movies. Uh, very unusual. Uh, the directing debut of Takashi Murakami, who is a, a, a very famous artist. And uh, the it, it's, it's oh boy, I don't even know how to how to describe this. Um, I mean, it's if you're, I guess, if you're an animation fan, if you're like a like a. If you're a fan of just weird Japanese art, I guess there's a lot of latitude here. But essentially, this is the story of a um, a, a little boy uh, who has this weird uh, creature for a friend uh, that he discovers is uh, basically other. Basically, all the other children have these creaturey things for friends. And uh, the it becomes kind of like a oh gosh I can't I can't say it's like E.T. It, it, it's not really in any way like E.T. or even like um, uh, Lilo and Stitch. It's it's just it's it feels, a, you know what it is it feels very culturally specific and insular. Where I was watching it, going it, was this created on Pluto? Yeah, it feels it you know it feels like a, there were, there's a whole class of films in Japan, and they they constitute anime and and CG animated and even live action. Where it feels like what they're basically about is this sense of insecurity, homogeneity, and alienation that the Japanese people feel relative to their culture, to just being on an island, to not having borders with other countries, to not really. Uh, you know, to being re- being sort of uh, not quite reconciled to their past, but not yet certain of their future, and uh, the only country that ever suffered, you know, nuclear annihilation, and, and now, you know, with this nuclear catastrophe at Fukushima, it just feels like there's so much in Japan that just feeds their anxiety and their uh, insecurity as a people. And uh, this just feels like another one of those movies that, that taps into that. So, I mean, you, it's very, very hard to describe, but... 
I mean, it's 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 admirable on many levels, but it's definitely an unusual film. Anyway, uh, special features. Uh, there's a um, a lot of behind the scenes stuff, including uh, Takashi Murakami, The Art of Film, which is all about the making of this film in particular. And um, you know, it's it's worth checking out. But I would almost say, you know, if you have uh, uh, Hulu Plus, you might want to take a look at it there first, just to make sure. Uh, Wait, I'm a big fan of uh, Patricia Highsmith, even though she was a horrible anti-Semite. But you know what? It just goes to show that... that that's why. That's one reason I think Carol was not nominated for Best Picture, to be honest. Really? That's, I have a theory. Why? Because, because, look, talented Mr. Ripley, five Oscar nominations, but not for Best Director or Picture. It, it, but there's it, enough, here's the thing, though. There's enough... If, if there's enough support for it to get five Oscar nominations, which because, is no small because, potatoes... Because, because there is a... Let's be honest. There is a higher, there's a higher concentration of old Jewish men what? in the director's branch what and among the, pro- among the producers. Really? And, I resemble that remark. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of old Jewish men among the costumers, but there definitely are in the director's branch. And Highsmith, is, you know, especially since that bio was published some years ago, where people are like, really? She was going to leave her fortune to the Intifada because she hated Israel so much? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, here's what I think of you, lady, and uh, that's, that's where it comes. Oh, my God. Well, I do love her books, and I've read a number uh, she's, of them. She's, so. Look, great no, I don't have to like her to like her books. Yeah, she's a true. great writer. She's a great writer. Um, and Criterion has, has gifted us with The American Friend, which is a great adaptation of uh, Ripley's Game, which is you know one of the Ripley novels. Uh, which the talented Miss Ripley was made into a film, you know, with uh, Matt Damon and whatnot. And uh, this is just really good stuff. I like this film a lot. This is uh, Dennis Hopper's in this. He's uh, he's the cynical hero, and he's he's got to find a somebody to kill. I'm trying to be as as vague as I can because I just think this thing is just wonderful. Um, and he's this American art dealer, and he winds up getting involved with this uh, with this dying German man who's played by Bruno Ganz, who was so amazing as Hitler in um, Downfall. So I cannot recommend enough um, The American Friend. I think it's just terrific. It was made in 1977, so it has, you know, it's been vendors, but yet it still has that a little bit of like weird paranoid thing yeah. going on, which was so... Apropos for the 70s, yep, you saw yep. a lot of American films, but mm-hmm. still, um, I just think this film is great. And of course, uh, Criterion knocked out of the park with the new 4, 4K digital restoration and um, a uh, audio commentary from 2002 featuring uh, Vin Vendors and Dennis Hopper, which is a total must-listen to, and a new interview with uh, Vendors, which is also good. He remembers a lot about the making of the film. So I would very highly recommend The American Friend, even though you're like, The American Friend? I don't know what you're talking about. All right, one more criterion, and then no, a few. We have another criterion. Oh, we do, don't we? Yeah. I, I, did you want to talk about this? Yeah. Well, I, I, I either either or. I, I, I love those films. Well, let's talk about uh, the complete lady Snowblood. Now, if you've seen uh, uh, Kill Bill, it's this is all over it. This is one of the. I mean, the, the lady Snowblood films are all over Kill Bill. Pretty much, Tarantino was a huge fan, and yeah. and this these films were a huge influence on him, and yeah. he wound up basically making. Kill At Bill least as a... The, well, the, the Kill Bill Part 1 is, is mostly influenced by Seijin Suzuki movies, uh, a few uh, Kinji Fukasaku uh, Yakuza movies, and the Lady Snowblood films. And the Lady Snowblood films. Now, this one is about uh, you should, this uh, woman, Yuki. Is, uh, she's an assassin trained from birth. She's got yep. to find the men who killed her, uh, murdered her father, and raped her mother before she was born. And, and it really is it's just... There's just like... 
there's just blood everywhere, man. The blood is <laughs> it's just really, spraying cool. onto the screen. It's, it's really cool. fantastic. It's fantastic. So if you like this kind of film, you will just completely and totally love all the sword play, great choreography on the sword play. Uh, the actress who plays Lady Snowblood is just awesome. You can see, like, you know, in 19, you know, this thing's from, like, the early 70s. You can see, like, you know, like, you know, boys coming of age at that time, seeing <laughs> totally this beautiful, true. demure, mm-hmm. you know, Japanese woman just kicking ass with a sword. And it's fantastic. It was, it was really great. How do you not love a name like Lady Snowblood? It just, it just, you, you, it, it conjures such a great uh, sensibility. Well, this is a great film. Anyway, Lady Snowblood. Lady Snowblood, the complete Lady Snowblood. Uh, And uh, from 1949, a really interesting uh, Italian neorealist film with some great credentials and a really lovely movie as well, if you've never heard of it. Uh, It tends to get overshadowed by a lot of the other great neorealist films, but uh, this is Bitter Rice uh, by the director Giuseppe De Santis. Not really a well-known director here, but you know the producer. You know the film's producer, Dino De Laurentiis. Dino, who uh, received a number of uh, Academy Award nominations for producing uh, some really great uh, early Italian films, and then went on to produce an awful lot of really bad Hollywood movies. But uh, in any case, Bitter Rice is, uh, is one of the better performances from Vittorio Gassman. Vittorio Gassman, a great Italian actor who did a lot of work in Hollywood as well. Uh, this is basically kind of a rural crime film in a lot of respects. It's a little bit noirish, but very, very neorealistic. Uh, it's essentially looking at the uh, what the life was like in post-war Italy for uh, for rural field workers and what they would have to resort to, uh, and what their you know how they how they were able to uh, sort of survive in this horrible environment. And it's interesting. It's an interesting contrast to. Uh, to something like The Bicycle Thieves, which is about living in the cities, in the, the burned-out, bombed-out ruins of cities where there's sort of no law and order in the, in the urban environment. This sort of goes out into the countryside and uh, wrestles with a lot of the same concepts. But a great performance by Vittorio Gassman, a uh, really, really good performance by uh, Doris Dowling as well, an American actress who shows up in this thing. And you get a uh, 2008 documentary uh, on the director, Giuseppe DeSantis, for those who really aren't familiar with his work. But... Uh, it's a, it's a very, very nice Blu-ray, an unexpected Blu-ray from Criterion, and uh, for fans of neorealism, definitely a nice entry into that catalog. And with that, Mark, we are done. We will be, uh, we'll be back next week with more fun and frolic. Wait, you mean I'll be back next week? Yes. Thanks, Wade.